Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 11 and beginning in verse 11 and reading through verse 24 is our text for today. So once again, let me invite you to turn there and to follow along as I read. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but light from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily? will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. Over the uh, past several weeks, uh, we have been taking note of the Apostle Paul's use of a style of argument where he leads into his next thought by posing questions that he has most likely heard repeatedly in every town throughout Asia Minor, and then he provides his answer to those questions. Anyone who has, on a regular basis, been engaged with others in questions of a biblical or theological nature can, after a while, tell you what questions are most likely to arise once the subject matter is clarified. 
And after countless hours of debate and reasoned argument, Paul is by now an old hand at pointing to the Scriptures and laying out for Jew and Gentile alike the biblical story which points towards a gracious God who has planned His work and then worked His plan. However, since we are all sinners and we are predisposed towards resistance where the gospel is concerned, we will begin to raise objections or we will raise questions over aspects of the gospel that may not make sense to us. And Paul anticipates those questions in his letter to the Romans and he voices those questions on their behalf which then provides him the opportunity to offer his response. And what's interesting is that he is constantly pointing to what we would call the Old Testament scriptures to provide answers. Though the congregation in Rome is made up of both Jew and Gentile, commentators are in agreement that the Gentiles made up the bulk of this church. And yet Paul still points to God's authoritative word in response, which should tell us something of the importance that the whole of Scripture should be to us as well. Now in chapters 9, 10, and 11, as we have been studying, the emphasis is on the issue of God's covenant promises to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Since the Jews have largely rejected the gospel, the question will arise naturally, what about them? What will become of them now that they have rejected God's Messiah? And Paul began this chapter 11 with the question, Has God finally and totally rejected His people? In other words, since they rejected the Christ by conspiring in His death on the cross, has God washed His hands of them? And Paul responds to that with a resounding, by no means. And he then points to other periods of history. When the nation turned its back upon the Lord and chased after other gods, but through it all, God kept a remnant for Himself. By the same token, God dealt with the sins of His people who hardened their hearts towards Him by intensifying the hardness of their hearts. Paul quotes Old Testament passages that declare God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. And this judicial hardening is the terrible result of obstinate and stubborn hearts which rest in personal pride and self-righteousness. The Gospel declares that God has done all that is necessary to satisfy the debt that we owe. But then there are those who cry out, I owe no debt. I'm perfectly fine just the way I am. My deepest problem is that I've not learned to love myself the way that I really need to love myself. And so that's what I'm planning to do next. I'm going to focus on me for the rest of my life. How often have we heard that in our own day? And it is by means of this kind of pseudo-psychological mumbo-jumbo that we begin to turn, not towards our Creator in great need, but we begin to turn inward where there is no hope, where there is no salvation, where there is no forgiveness for our sin, 
and the darkness grows ever darker, and the deafness becomes even more deafening. And all along the way, our hearts grow ever more hardened towards the proclamation of the gospel. Well, as Paul responds to that first question, he quotes then from Psalm 69, where David declares about his enemies, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. And this provokes another question that Paul has heard before that we read in verse 11. Well then, did Israel, in regard to Christ, trip over him for the express purpose of falling out of God's grace forever and ever? In other words, did the death of Christ mark the end of them? Was that God's final straw where they're concerned? And it would certainly seem like that would be the end of it, that God would completely withdraw His favor and that God would contend with them no more. But you see, just because we are faithless does not mean that God is faithless. To the contrary, God is always faithful. God makes promises that God will keep. And with an even more resounding reply, Paul declares, by no means. Paul recognizes that his kinsmen have sinned greatly by rejecting God's Messiah. And he acknowledges the role that they played in Christ's crucifixion. But at the same time, he understands that God has been working out His plan through that crucifixion such that God's plan is perfectly coming together. Recall for a moment how the Apostle Peter handled that on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 3. And he says in his sermon, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now neither Peter nor Paul offers any absolution for the greatest sin of all sins, the crucifixion of the Christ, the very Son of God. But at the same time, they both acknowledge that this was all part of God's plan for the salvation of of mankind. From before the foundation of the world, the triune God knew what would be required to save mankind from their sin. God had a plan, and He worked His plan. So by virtue of that disobedience on Israel's part, the gospel message has been made available to the other sheep that Jesus referred to in John chapter 10. And by virtue of that disobedience, Israel's own salvation has been made possible through the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And Paul's hope is that when Israel sees the joy and the hope that has come to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ, that they will develop a spiritual jealousy that will awaken in them a desire to learn more about God's good news. Paul does not seek to downplay Israel's role in the crucifixion, which he refers to here as their trespass. But rather, he calls attention to how God has used that failure on her part 
to bring the gospel to every other nation and to welcome those outside of the biological line of Abraham into the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, do you remember what God said to the patriarch when he called him to follow? He said to him, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in that exact moment, Abraham probably did not understand the full plan of God or how God was going to work that out. But by the time that Abraham is approaching Mount Moriah with his only son Isaac, his son whom he loved, the son through whom God said the promise would come, the son whom Abraham was prepared to sacrifice to God out of faithful obedience, the son who asked his father, where's the lamb? We have the wood and the fire, but I see no lamb. And Abraham answered his son by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb. At that moment, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, so says the writer to the Hebrews. And I believe that's what Jesus was referring to when he said to his own antagonist, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And so this grand plan that Peter and Paul refer to as one that incorporates the stubbornness of the descendants of Abraham to bring about the sacrificial death of the only begotten Son of God such that by His atoning work and victory over death in the grave, not only would Israel have her Messiah, but so would the whole world. As Paul says in verse 15, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, Paul is not counting out God's grace falling on Israel afresh, nor should the Gentiles nor anyone else. And so lest anyone jump to the conclusion that God has reached the point in his relationship with Israel that he's finally finished with with them, Paul calls attention to the fact that God is even now harboring a remnant and that a day is coming when the full number of the Jews will be added. Now we will see more about that next week. But what concerns Paul here now is that an attitude may be present among a portion of the Gentile saints in Rome that is less than loving, that borders on arrogance, and he intends here to challenge it head on. He says in verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Even though Paul understands himself to be called to reach the Gentiles, he vigorously does so with one eye on the folks with whom he feels the greatest kindred spirit. He is energized in his ministry in part because he wants to also make an impact on the Jews whom he loves like the brothers that they are. 
Now we can all imagine this, can we not? Many of us have family members or close friends who as of yet have refused to surrender their wills to the Lord and our hearts ache for them. We pray for them on a daily basis. We intercede for them before the Lord. And the thought of our own departure into eternity is somewhat difficult for us to bear with the niggling thought that these loved ones might not be with us in that realm. And so we look for opportunities to reach them with the Gospel. But in some instances, that is not practical. And yet we continue to pray. And we ask the Lord to send another believer to them. We pray that God will have mercy upon them and that God will break down their resistance and that by means of another, the Gospel will be proclaimed in order that they might come to faith. Well, Paul feels this way about his kinsmen according to the flesh. He wants his fellow countrymen to believe and he perceives that one way for that to occur will be through the energetic evangelism of the Gentiles. He imagines that when the Jews catch sight of the transformation that happens in their Gentile neighbors, that they will begin to take notice. He imagines that when the Jews see what occurs in a believer when they enter into genuine fellowship with the risen Christ, that they will not be able to resist asking questions and then perhaps seeing for themselves what all of this gospel business is about. Now here's a word of encouragement towards us who may have grown a bit lazy in regards to our own spiritual development. Paul is hopeful that the transformation of the Gentile community will create a jealousy within the Jewish community. In other words, when the reality of the risen Christ abiding in believers through the Holy Spirit transforms that believer who was once an ungodly pagan worshiping idols, people whom the Jews would have referred to as dogs, into a living, breathing saint who loves the Lord God. Paul is hopeful that the Jews will want some of that. Particularly when those same Gentiles do not display the kind of cultural hatred that many had towards the Jews, but instead offer to them love and grace and display an uncommon humility. Now let me ask us, when's the last time that someone took notice of our Christian character? When's the last time someone commented on the fruit of the Spirit that exudes from us? Do we, by our life, create a sense of jealousy in anyone else? Do they see us and think to themselves, you know, I don't know what he has or what she has, but I need to find out because I want that too. In this day and age, we hear all about social media influencers. Let me ask you, are we influencers for Christ? One of the issues that plagues the church is when believers get too cozy with the culture that is typically antithetical to the ways of Christ. Now, that's not to say that Christians are called upon to shun anything and everything and live in isolation out in the desert. Jesus prayed for us to His Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. As disciples of Christ, we are to recognize that we are salt and light in the world so as to have an effect upon the world rather than the world having an effect upon us. And yet there are many who claim to be believers who give little evidence that their thinking, their values, their ethics, their behavior have been transformed by the truth of Christ And that is almost always tied to the fact that they are not students of Scripture. How else can one explain individuals, churches, entire denominations who claim the name of Christ and yet intentionally follow worldly ideologies so as to blur the lines of distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world? The Apostle Paul is not making an argument to the Gentiles here that they should excel in being like the world, nor is he making an argument that they should seek to be like the Jews who got it all wrong. He's making an argument that the Gentiles should be so transformed by the Spirit of Christ that their Jewish neighbors will grow jealous, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would begin to work through the Gentiles to the degree that the Jews would begin to feel displaced. Paul wants to create a jealousy in his kinsmen through the regenerative transformation of the Gentiles. And so he presses on in his ministry with the hope that they will be reached because of it. Now having made that point, Paul wants to pastorally correct the Gentile Christians in Rome who may be suffering from a growing arrogance. Some seem to be under the notion that God has transferred his favor from Israel to the Gentiles and they're feeling pretty good about themselves as a result of that. And in response, Paul uses the metaphor of a branch being grafted into an olive tree. This has Old Testament connections that We mentioned in our Jeremiah passage earlier, we're not going to explore that just now, but Paul calls attention to the fact that the branch which has been grafted into the cultivated olive tree has no reason to boast. Instead, the attitude of the branch should be that of grateful thanksgiving for the tree into which it has been grafted. For by it comes its nourishment and sustenance. And while it is true that God has pruned the tree, lopping off certain branches in order to make room for the grafted branches, there's no room here for spiritual pride or arrogance. Those other branches were broken off because of their unbelief. Those branches developed an attitude of pride and they began to trust in their position. They began to think more highly of themselves than they ought to have thought And the more they followed that line of thinking, the further and further they grew from the Lord. No, Paul is saying, don't begin to grow arrogant, but rather take note of how gracious God has been to you. Take note of how gracious God has been in all of history. 
Take note of how gracious God has been in His Son, Jesus. Take note of how gracious God has been in providing you with all that you need. And instead of growing arrogant, develop instead a healthy sense of awe and fear towards the one who has saved you. Now, does this describe us in any way? In our attitude towards those who have not yet come to the faith? Is there a sense of pride in us such that we look with some disdain upon those who are our unbelieving neighbors? Paul says you can't go there. For it's that kind of pride that led to those natural branches being removed from the tree. It's only through humility, through a brokenness, through a a recognition that we are people who are in need that we can come to God's throne of grace. And once we've been grafted in, we should abide in thanksgiving and awe and never lose sight of God's grace. Now we need to draw our sermon today to a close because we have gone long. But we cannot close until we take note of what Paul declares beginning in verse 22. He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Now here is a statement that many moderns will never understand. They're willing to only emphasize the love of God, and they will never look seriously at the wrath of God, for in their minds these are mutually exclusive characteristics. And as a result, they many of them reject the Apostle Paul as an apostle because he declares that both of these are true of God. Paul calls attention to these two aspects of God's nature as a warning to any who are tempted towards arrogance. God is incredibly kind to those who receive by faith the salvation that is offered in Christ Jesus. But to those who reject that salvation, the severity of God will be made known in judgment. But lest we conclude that God's mercy and kindness has an expiration date, let us notice what Paul then says in verse 23. And even they, meaning the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. In other words, even though from all appearances there is someone whose life gives little to no evidence that they are interested in the gospel, think thief on the cross. That does not mean that God has pronounced an eternal judgment upon them, nor should we. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And therefore, Paul has not given up on his kinsmen according to the flesh. Nor should these Gentiles. Nor should we. But rather we need to remember that God is long-suffering towards us and He seeks to be merciful. That He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And as we will see next week, there is an unfolding plan that God has that will demonstrate before the world that he has not forgotten the Jews. Now where are you this morning? And have you been grafted in? 
Has God been gracious to you and made you a part of this wonderful story that is continuing to unfold even in this present time? And if that has not yet taken root in you, then I invite you to surrender in complete repentance to Him and receive Christ as your only Savior and Lord. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might close in a brief prayer.